0: Welcome to Ciao Bella, hosted by me, Erica Firpo, travel journalist based in Rome. Each episode of Ciao Bella, I sit down with Italy's creators, contemporary artists and artisans, designers, culinary experts, heritage brands and innovative estites, and more who are defining and redefining 21st century Italy. Pull up a chair and join in.
1: Welcome back to Ciao Bella. Today, I'm in the Uffizi Museum with... Eike Schmidt, the director of the Uffizi Galleries, which is an incredible an incredible opportunity, an incredible experience any day of the week. Welcome.
2: Hello, and uh, great to have you here as a, one of the few visitors that we actually have in a time that the museum is not really visited, um, that we have to close right now, um, but uh, uh, you're here for professional reasons and that gives you this uh, extraordinary opportunity to come here, the almost empty rooms, almost empty because we're still working on a number of projects.
1: Well, you know, it's, it's what Tommaso told me was that it's an incredible experience to just be here and have the entire place to yourself, though he did say it's kind of big after a while.
2: That's true, and you never really have it to yourself. I mean, even um, like 2 a.m. in the morning, there are security guards, 6 a.m. in the morning, the first people come to clean the place, to sanitize it. Um, I like to come early. Uh, Even uh, before uh, the lockdown, I like to come early. And uh, I mean, that was the one moment where you could just uh, be almost alone. And um, uh, well, now it's, similar to that for the rest of the day, but uh, yes, I think at any given moment during the day, I'm sure we have about 60 or 70 people somewhere in the building doing something.
1: Can I, you know, can you remind me how, when did you start with the Uffizi?
2: In November 2015.
1: In 2015, so it's been almost six years. Um, This is an incredible place to be. In Florence, it's an incredible place to be in history because the museums—they—they they opened as offices, but in the in the late sixteen, in the late fifteen hundreds, correct? Uh,
2: well, the Uffizi was built as an office building. It was kind of the Medici's west wing uh, from the fifteen from from fifteen sixty to fifteen eighty-ish, uh, more or less. So they put on the last touches in eighty five, but uh, basically starting in fifteen sixty over twenty years. Um, and already during that time, in the early 80s, uh, sort of towards the end of the time, um, Cosimo I's son, Cosimo I was the original patron, and his son, Francesco de' Medici, was actually very much interested in art and science, and uh, he uh, put in the first two spaces dedicated to art, and uh, that were the corridors. Uh, originally there was an open loggia on the upper floor, like we have often in Mexico or in um, other um, Hispanic locations. And the idea was the very same, like there, uh, to have a cool breeze in the afternoon. Uh, Francesco closed uh, the loggia with windows and put statuary in there. That was one thing. Then he also had the frescoes painted that are above our heads. These are 99 frescoes with more than 30,000 figures and scenes. (laughs) So I think nobody ever... Uh, looked at them all, I mean, I, I, I think so far. I mean, we, have, we published them for the first time two years ago in a really huge volume. And even there, I mean, mysteries remain. So I think we have about 99 subjects for PhD thesis in art history for future students here. Um, and uh, then he also created the Tribuna, uh, an octagonal space. Uh, on the eastern side of the Uffizi, uh, which in a way was meant to resemble the universe. So you have the four elements that were known then. um, Earth, water, fire and air. And um, within these elements, artwork. The most precious artworks that the Medici owned were all united there. And that continued. So in the 17th century when uh, some really important, great statue is brought from the Medici Villa in Rome to Florence. Uh, the Medici Venus was uh, shown there for the first time, and from that moment on, all the travelers uh, came, and it was the custom actually for travelers to um, almost kneel down and kiss the hand of Venus, just to
1: um, I didn't know.
2: yeah, just to. Acknowledge that she is the most beautiful representation of a human being in existence, and uh, well, that ended in the 19th century. So, but but still, I mean, that was for about 150 years. uh, Every visitor was meant to do that part. Part of the Uffizi experience nowadays, not because if people would continue to do that, (laughs) normally we have four and a half million uh, visitors. uh, She wouldn't have a hand anymore. (laughs) But um, at the time, they did that. Um, And uh, then they also put the most precious paintings in the Uffizi. There is a painting by Johann Zoffany in the collection of the Queen of England um, uh, that shows um, English travelers on their grand tour in the Tribuna. That's kind of an iconic image of uh, tourism in the 18th Mm -hmm. century, Uh, really a very high level tourism. Um, It's also very much fictionalized. You only see male visitors. Fortunately, we know <laughs> from the uh, uh, record books that they, um, uh, that we also had a lot of female visitors, fortunately.
1: Well, I'm sure the painter was a man, that's why. He was, <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, speaking of visitors, you have, with the with Uffizi in in your tenure, you have opened up the Uffizi more than anyone to, to different aspects of the Uffizi. I, I think one of the things that I've always enjoyed is that it feels refreshed. It feels, you know, there's something, uh, there's something new, even though it might not be, you know, from the 21st century. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about that, about what's new.
2: Well, um, first of all, we opened a lot of new galleries and that gave us the opportunity to show um, the paintings in a different way with more space between them were necessary. Uh, so the big masterworks uh, really um in the past were crammed together with uh, secondary works oftentimes um and uh, in several parts of the collection it was uh or it really the collection was hung uh by topography of the artist's birthplace hmm. which didn't really make a lot of sense because you had to make time travels all the time um, and and uh, so we uh re conceive the collection and reinstall it in a uh, more chronological sense. And then uh, we created dialogues between paintings, which in the past was always the main, um, was was one of the main criteria to put paintings together to make people think, to make people talk to one another, um, uh, rather than if you have isolated paintings, one next to the other, and we actually have over 3,000 works of art on view, so you can imagine, how boring that can get and how mechanical that can get. I mean, if you if they don't speak to one another, in the end, you don't have a real experience. You only have the experience in front of the single work, which would be better served if you would just have the single work in one room. So people always look at the works next to the paintings. In fact, the human eye is such that even colors, you perceive the colors. Differently, if the colors around are different. The Impressionists um, made that one of their principles in, in their art, but that's valid and that was known by painters long before. That's why we uh, actually researched and found colors that were appropriate for the age the painters were working. So, for the Baroque period, we uh, identified a um, textile of velvet that uh, we had in the room uh, while we constructed this. Um, color surface using the traditional techniques. So, this looks super contemporary, and yet we use the traditional techniques that were used in the 16th and 17th century for that. And that means that we don't just put a color on the wall. I mean, that's very one dimensional. But we really, it's really an architectural construction of five, eight, 12, and sometimes 15 layers of different colors. When we started with the broke galleries our first uh, color um, after the grounding was really a very very kind of 1980s pink and uh, so people like and said <laughs> oh are you sure you want to show those I said, well just wait a little bit in a few weeks this will be all very different and so actually you start with some light paintings and then you have darker tones and then you light it up again and that means that depending on the light situation, the natural light situation, uh, whether it's morning or afternoon, the uh, color of the wall changes slightly and uh, because you do, the human eye does perceive the underlying colors as well and also it makes it a much more vivid surface and it helps the colors in the painting to actually come out more and that's something that never happens if you just uh, buy uh, one paint and then uh, put it across. It's more expensive, of course, but it's really worth the investment.
1: Well, it sounds like what you're saying also is it's the, the, the mood will change to the time of day that you're there, the, uh, the lighting that's in there, and it also will bring out different moods within the paintings that are in the room Exactly, as
2: well. Exactly, that's, that's very important. And uh, yes, you mentioned it, mood, so paintings that do not just have an intellectual quality, but a, a very strong emotional and social quality too. And that's very important, to pull that out too, and to inspire people uh, through the art, uh, and to let the art inspire people. Um, in, in Italy, for a long time, and actually amongst uh, Italian uh, intellectuals and art historians, this is still very strong today, the idea is that the uh, museum should really be like a, like a school, and you should learn the facts about the painter, and then you go there to demonstrate uh, whether you learned the, the, the dates of the, of, the, of the painter and, and the biography, and um, and that's something that uh, really works. Not even for 001 percent for of our visitors, of course. People generally come here because the Uffizi are famous. True. And um, then. Do we really want to frustrate them and show them 3,000 times during their visit that they don't know what we expect them to know? No, we don't expect them actually to know that. I think that's wrong. That's not the mission of a museum. Museums should really give something to people and not take something, not test them. I mean, that's not an exam. So, uh, that's the reason why we introduced uh, labels for all works of art. In the past, ancient statuary didn't have any labels at all because it was thought that people already knew uh, who Tiberius was uh, would be able to identify him and then uh, you know they would stood amongst themselves uh, now they all have labels and actually that means that people actually stop take selfies with the sculptures, look at them carefully draw them now we have uh, we put benches into the galleries we're sitting on one of them right now uh, there were about 20, Seats spread throughout the galleries when I arrived, and they were generally taken by uh, security guards. And so, I mean, only if you had a very, really very, very elderly visitor, sometimes they were allowed to sit down. Now, everyone is allowed to sit down, is invited to sit down because if you sit down, you can look at the works of art much, much better. And this also kindles Conversation, then that is, is really one of the primary functions, I think, of an art museum. It was seen like that in the 18th century, the century when museums first became publicly uh, available, open to the public. In fact, um, the Uffizi is the first historical collection, important historical collection, to open to the public in 1769. From that year on, um, and that's really more than 20 years before the louvre in fact you could just uh present yourself at the door and uh and walk in and see the gallery you didn't need to have a letter of recommendation from ah. your ruler at home uh <laughs> or from your archbishop or so but um uh, you uh, could just um stop by during your trip to Florence and come in, and the Florentines were invited to come, the entire population was invited to come for free to the Uffizi once a year, uh, every uh, 24th of July uh, for the day of uh, San Giovanni, the uh, Feast of San Giovanni, the patron saint of Florence. And uh, that's a tradition that really brought anyone from Florence, uh, regardless whether rich or poor, regardless uh, what background or what interests uh, they came in. And that was a tradition until 1859 when the Habsburg-Lorraine dynasty left Florence. And after that, um, uh, well yes, the modern uh, history of the museum starts, which unfortunately is also a a history of making the museum um, more and more an elitist institution over the decades. Until- I think
1: that's what happened with a lot of museums at that point. Yeah,
2: absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that was a worldwide phenomenon. Um, There were some museum directors throughout the world in the late 19th century, early 20th century that really worked against that. But um, overall that uh, is Something that we have to consider. And in Italy, differently from other countries, this is a tradition that even today, I mean, uh, finds some, um, uh, find, find some proponents, uh, strangely. Um, and uh, well, sometimes we have to, to I mean, sometimes they're, they're really a public. Fight about some of these um, measures to democratize, democratize the museum.
1: Well, one of the things that I've, I've loved, especially over the past year, that the Uffizi has been doing is the digital presence, reaching out to people, you know, around the world in a way that, you know, I, I had not really seen any museum do. Um, I know that you were, I know that the Uffizi is very popular on Instagram, and it was on Twitter, but right, I guess it was about a year ago mm. you launched with Facebook. Mm. And I mean, I'm, I'm gonna bring up, I have to bring up TikTok. I mean, that was to me one of the, like I, that was probably the months of like, I don't know, it was like May when I first picked up on it. And I was like, it just brings, bring, it brought so much joy to me. And I was so happy because it didn't just bring joy because I love art and I love seeing the artwork and the Uffizi, it's how it was presented. It was making that conversation.
2: Uh, that that was our aim, and you got there um, in May, so you're very fast. We uh, launched TikTok on uh, April the 28th. Um, oh, and, uh, good. <laughs> you're, uh, you found us. So, um, uh, in fact, uh, differently from our other social media channels, we wanted to use a different language. We embraced the language that typical for the uh, channel, and that is a self-ironical way um, of dealing with... Uh, works of art, presenting works of art, to have contemporary rock music and uh, hip hop music uh, to illustrate works of art. Uh, Yes, once in a while to make them virtually dance, why not? Um, (laughs) uh, But also uh, because it was the time of the first lockdown uh, still and then the first reopening, uh, we also addressed um, contemporary issues uh, such as social distancing in a self-ironic way which sometimes is far more effective and as far as the generation Z is concerned i mean it's the only way you can reach them at all uh-huh and, and think, they came and they came
1: and i think i i think it was great because i think it's 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 created uffizi i i i consider it you know a leader in that in that digital world for museums because i don't think there aren't that many museums that are able to talk you know I now i 'm going, going to sound like my mom in that, in their language, <laughs> you know <laughs> and, and I think it 's great because I think that also inspires you know that, that puts the seed in someone 's mm. mind that eventually they 're going to come here because they want to see not the dancing statue, but they, they, you know they, they want to see that statue exactly
2: you know? in fact, i mean that 's one thing that I mean nobody uh, believes, I and mean, that was one of the criticisms like, well, people might come here to see uh, the famous influencer and then they might discover that the influencer is not there and then they might be disappointed and go away. Now, of course, I mean, everyone knows that, um, yes, this is a cool place because uh, we have famous actors and influencers and uh, fashion icons that um, come through the galleries. And sometimes you might be surprised by uh, some of the other visitors, but uh, y- you go here for the art, not for the other visitors. Exactly. And, um, yeah, the same thing, I mean, people wouldn't expect uh, uh, the statues to actually dance, but they might come and uh, take a video, which is even better, so, I mean, to use it as a challenge. Um, it's a
1: challenge, and I think it also, you know, highlights a de- can highlight a detail that, you know, y- you might not have even been looking for, and all of a sudden now you want to go and see you know, that particular snake coming on that one painting, or there's, you know, and that, I think, is really what's amazing. Um, I wanted to ask you if you have, if, if you've had any experience with the VR and AR for virtual visits, has that, is that something that's on the on the horizon?
2: Um, we're experimenting uh, both with uh, VR and AR, but um, we're uh, we're not at a point at this very moment where we would be ready to launch something. Um, I see advantages, disadvantages, um, and I see some challenges. Uh, I think uh, as the products that we see right now, I don't see any of them to be very easily adaptable to the museum reality, but I think in terms of the vision, just making a little change here and there, some of that could become very interesting. Um, uh, VR, are obviously mostly off-site. Uh, it could be a great um, means of uh, communication Uh, for uh, people who have not the chance to uh, be in Florence and see uh, the original. It might also help see some of the uh, parts of the Uffizi that you cannot safely access normally. That's Um, what I'm talking about. Exactly, (laughs) and uh, that's certainly something we have more than on our radar. I mean, actually, we uh, are Digital strategy department. I mean, does uh, experiment uh, in that in that area uh, quite a lot. Uh, AR is more likely to become, uh, in my view, a standard feature of museum uh, visits in the future. But it ve- will very much depend upon uh, what the actual gadget will be. So, um, at the moment, we don't have a. Uh, typical um, AR uh, medium that is uh, established in society. So you remember when first um, the first tablets were launched in the 1990s, yeah. No, they didn't take off. The like Google was Glasses, there.
1: that was Google like really cool for like, like a week. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: so we're not there yet. But I think for a museum, it's important already to look at the content side. We know already what you can do with AR. You know, the, the advantages are very clear and also but we have to wait for the right medium to actually launch. And um, uh, because I think uh, what is uh, what's for sure is that people will bring their own gadgets into the museum. I mean, to, uh, I don't see it happening that people will actually go and rent. A device, and then um, return it at the end of their visit. I mean, that's not how things nowadays work anymore.
1: No, you'll get your coolest glasses that you can get. You know, like the you'll you'll have your own because I think you're gonna you know you're gonna want the best. If it, who's ever bringing it, they're gonna want the one that they can get. You know, they're not gonna they're gonna want to be able to personalize it and whatnot, and that's what they're gonna be bringing exactly. To in. Exactly. In the
2: meantime, in the meantime, uh, you know, normal cell phones work uh, great. So we have. Uh, or 300 videos that explain the single works of art. And we regularly, I mean, we didn't even tell people to do that, but uh, people who knew that we had these videos on our website, I mean, they just came with their phones at the galleries with earbuds, of course, and then they stood before the paintings, the statues, and they listened to the um, video explanation. And I think that was great. And that means that people really found out that this works and so now we take that into account so that it works off-site, but also on-site um, as an added value to the Should visit.
0: Experience. Thanks for joining me and Uffizi director Eike Schmidt. To keep up with the Uffizi, visit uffizi.it. That's U-F-F-I-Z-I dot And on Instagram and TikTok, Uffizi Galleries, all one word, and Uffizi TV on YouTube, I'd also like to give a big thank you to Marriott's Weston Excelsior, Florence, who lovingly hosted this episode by hosting me in room 510, a top-floor room with a panoramic terrace putting me eye-to-eye with Palazzo Vecchio and the Duomo. Located on the banks of the Arno River at Piazzogni Santi, the Weston Excelsior is a historic landmark and one of those gorgeous grand hotels that makes you feel like you're part of a period film, like a room with a view. And I also love it because it's incredible position. You're just across the river from San Ferriano, a charming borgo, and about a 10-minute walk to Palazzo Vecchio. Find out more at Marriott.com. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Ciao, Bella. If you'd like to know more about today's guest, please visit ciaobella.co and click on the podcast link or go directly to ciaobella.co backslash podcast. Want more Italy? You can find all my episodes on iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher. When you have time, subscribe to iTunes and rate the podcast. What are you waiting for? And if you want to be part of the podcast, email me or DM me your Italy questions. To learn more about me and my work, go to my website, Ericafierpo.com, and follow my Italy adventures on Instagram at ericafirpo. Ciao, Bella! And a very big thank you and hug to Massimiliano Yonta and Dis to Disc Studios, the producers of Chao Bella, who continue to make me sound and feel great.